As I mentioned, the Bible is God's letter. The Bible is a letter from, from God to us. God shows himself to us. There, there are many different books in the Bible. Each, each of the different books, they, they all tell part of the same story. They all tell much of the same story in different ways. Each of the book in its unique way. And each, each author or each personality, we're studying the prophets right now. We're considering the message of the prophets, but especially that prophet's message through that particular prophet in his sermon. Calling this best sermons ever. Not mine, but theirs. I'm just borrowing. It's really kind of a great month. You know, I just read somebody else's sermon and give it. And there's no plagiarism involved. I tell you up front, this is Hosea. There we are. Okay. Hosea. Hosea is a unique prophet. Hosea is special among the prophets. Hosea, uh, his, his relationship, his personal relationship, in fact, it's funny. I hadn't planned it this way that I would have an announcement about Becky and getting married at the same Sunday that I'd be talking about Hosea. And Hosea has an announcement about his marriage. And it's not as fun. It's also a bit surprising, but it's scandalous instead. It's shocking instead. But Hosea's marriage even, the circumstance of his life, is God's revelation. Hosea's own personal story becomes God's revelation. He is in a, a hurting marriage. Now, now, let me back up a minute. Your marriage can be that part of your story, your marriage can be where God himself is revealed. We know that's true in Ephesians chapter 5, that uh, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her because in that sacrificial love, Jesus himself is seen in his love for the church. Something about God is seen and known in the midst of our human relationship. It makes marriage much more than we perhaps realized it is. God lifts up marriage because he, he ordained marriage to show us something of himself. All right? Now, that's true when marriage is wonderful, right? What about when marriage isn't wonderful? Now, now, I'm not talking about your marriage now. I'm talking about the person next to you. Their marriage. Your marriage is wonderful. The person next to you, maybe it's not so much. But even in the midst of when it's hurting and broken and it's not right, there, God's own heart can be revealed. God will make himself known even there, even in the midst of some of our deepest hurts, God will make himself known. Just because your story isn't what you thought it was supposed to be, doesn't make your story invalid. Doesn't mean God won't use your story. Doesn't make it any less real. No, because it's not wrong, or, or rather because it might be all wrong, it actually might be all the more real and actually connect right to where people around you are who desperately need to know your Savior. We ourselves, in the midst of our story, desperately need to know our Savior. Now, Hosea the prophet has an unpopular message he has a politically incorrect message. He is going to be declaring that the 90-year-long dynasty of kings, the family of kings in, northern, in the northern kingdom of Israel, that they have, they have had a 90-year run, the longer than any other royal dynasty in the north, is about to come to an end. One of the most successful and prosperous kings ever, Jeroboam II, is at the, at the height of his reign and prosperity rules the country. Things seem to be going good. 
from a prosperity materialistic point of view, and yet he's going to be dead within a couple of years. His whole family dynasty is going to end sooner than they realize. Not only that, but within 30 years or so from the time of Hosea's prophecy, 30 years or so from when he starts his messages, the whole economy is going to collapse. The political is going to collapse. They're going to have six different kings in, in, in the period of 30 years. The normal way to ascend the throne is going to be through assassination. It's going to be a time of upheaval and turmoil and high taxes and no, un, no employment. The economy is going to, bottom is going to drop out. It's going to be a time of great ruin and despair. From the best of times to the worst of times. That's Hosea's message. That's what's coming. How could this prophet expect to gain a hearing with anybody with that kind of material to work with? It's a tough climb. It's a tough sled. And yet, God gives him the power of a compelling story, a compelling personal story. You see, your story matters. Your story matters even when it's a story of hurt and brokenness like Hosea's is because God has hurt like this too. And God is going to use Hosea's story to show, to, re, to, to unpack, to make the intangible tangible, to make the abstract concrete. God is going to use Hosea's story that they can relate to to make known to them something between them and God which is, is hard to hard to relate to. Your story matters. God is hurt like this too. Hosea's story, story begins in chapter 1. It's a personal story. It seems God has not been good to the prophet. Perhaps kind of like Amos who, who begin, to, begin to speak first from a perspective that his audience would, would appreciate and agree with, Hosea may do some of that too because Hosea presents God as being a demanding God who requires his people to do something unreasonable. It seems very unreasonable what Hosea is asked to do, what God asks of his own prophet. God seems to use Hosea. It costs Hosea greatly. Let me pick up in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2. Uh, if you're following along in a pew Bible, you'll find us on page 751. Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of prostitution and have children of prostitution, for the land commits great prostitution, forsake, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Their military strength, which is strong at the moment, is going to be crushed. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them. At all, But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen, not by your own armies. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived again and bore a son. Notice it doesn't say she bore to him a son. It just says she bore a son. When she conceived again, she, she, she bore a son, and the Lord, called, Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people. And I am not 
your God. Wow. Hosea, now there's a lot of discussion. Did Hosea marry a woman who was already in prostitution? Or did he marry a woman who would become? That's all not really clear. It's hard to, it's hard to, hard to say for certain. It's really not the point of the story so much. The point of the story is the unfaithfulness that comes. The unfaithfulness that comes to the point that first she bears him a son. And so perhaps it, it's, it's stronger more to the, the sense of he, he marries a wife who he's told is going to be unfaithful. But along the way, it becomes less clear whose child is born here. And the end, in the naming, in the, in the official public naming ceremony of this third child, can you imagine being the father who names the child, even as we see in the New Testament in Luke, I think it's chapter 1, with the naming of John the Baptist, and they look to Zechariah, what will his name be? You know, the father does that. This is the father's role. Holds up this child, and what does he name this child? Not mine. Can you imagine the, the scandal? Can you imagine the shame? Can you imagine the, the, the hurt in Hosea's own heart of his personal story? And God knew. God knew it was going to be like this, and God led him into this. Eyes open, knowing what it was going to be, and yet God led him in. How does it feel to be used by God? Yeah, God wants to make his point. But how do you think Hosea feels? He may be thinking, well, that's maybe the cost of being a prophet, but I don't want anything of it. If that's what it is to be used by God, I don't want to be used. I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be in that kind of pain. I'll just keep my head down. I'll just try to muddle through the best I can. Maybe God won't notice me. And... But Hosea's story has more meaning than that. Hosea's story matters, not merely because of the pain of it, but Hosea's story opens up something of the pain of God that needs to be known and, and can be known not only by Hosea, but also by the others around about. There's also restoration already, even in this first chapter. There's the hint of it. There's the telling of it. There's the looking ahead in hope. Look at verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. You see, the not my people declaration isn't God's hateful, petty spit, spitefulness that he's fed up with these people and, he's, and, and, and they're not going to be his anymore. They haven't been his for a long time. They have left. They have departed. They aren't his. They haven't been his. And he's just making very plain to them what has been the case. They are not his. And yet, that which is not his, he's going to make his own. He's going to restore them to what they cannot be for themselves, but what they ought to be and what they, what they should be and what they could be by his grace and by his mercy. That's coming through the story. But he already hints at it, even in the first chapter. Now, chapter 2 is the indictment that, that it's not God who's unworthy of Israel, but Israel is unworthy of God. She's been voted, she has devoted herself and the blessings that God has given her to another. If I could put this in the, in the terms of the story as it's unfolding, Israel has been sleeping around with bums who are living off of her while she thinks her prosperity is coming from them. That's the image that's, that's portrayed in the story. And yet even still in verse, in verse 14 of chapter 2, Therefore, behold, I will, I will allure her, I will draw her back. 
I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give her her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor, a valley of trouble, into a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And this is a troublesome verse, this next one. It's, it's translated very differently in different translations, trying to capture it, not sure what to do, use the original term, or translate it to interpret it into an English word. But I'll give you the sense of it. Verse 16. And in that day, when she is restored from Baal worship, the false god of the Canaanites, back to worship of the true God, Jehovah, Yahweh, in that day, declares the Lord, you will, you will call me my husband. A romantic term. Same image being used. And no longer will you call me my master. And your ESV translates that, my Baal. Because Baal, the Hebrew word for master, is very similar, very close to the name of the Canaanite deity, the false god, Baal. And so it sounds the same. It seems the same word. And so they're not going to refer to the true God as their master any longer because they don't want to call him anything that sounds something like that false God that they used to worship. God has so gotten a hold of their hearts that they don't want any, any, any lingering remnant of the past in their life. They want, they want new life. They want to be different. They want to be wholly devoted to the Lord without any sense of that former unfaithfulness. That's how God is going to radically change them. I thought, just as a complete aside, interesting, the, the major world religion today that seems to be threatening chaos everywhere is Islam, which the emphasis of Islam, or what it is to be a Muslim, is to be submitted to God as master, not God as husband. Not an intimate relationship of love. That's not in view. Fascinating. Some of the aspects of false gods, demon-driven, haven't changed all through the centuries. From then until now, it's an oppression of humanity versus a love relationship with the God who made us and who would redeem us back to himself. That's really why I stopped there and pointed that out. I thought it was an interesting thing. But look at verse, or rather chapter 3. And here in, the, in these first three chapters, a compelling personal story. In chapter 3, we see how it's going to wrap up, how it's going to end. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Nothing to do with raisins here. Don't get distracted. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a, and a lethic of barley. We're not going to get into that either. It's a whole bunch of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You will not play the prostitute or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar idols, without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. To David their king. Did you get that? The, the, the reign, the dynasty of Jeroboam II is coming to an end. But Israel, northern kingdom, has never had a Davidic king. They left the Davidic kings. But God said, I'm going to bring you back. You left. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to reunite Israel again under, their, under David, their king. Wait a minute, David's been dead a long time. There was David, there was Solomon, there was Solomon's son, and then they all split. And 
David, their king, is the Messiah. The greater son of David, the greater than David who is coming. And I'm going to unite them all together in him. Here we have already the Christ, the son of David. Remember when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, what did the crowds say? Hosanna to the son of David. And he's the one who is going to restore those who were lost back to himself. And here it is, tucked away in the midst of Hosea. In hurt, in the midst of disappointment, in betrayal and rejection, I want you to remember that may be your story. There may be parts of that lingering around it. But in all of that, in the hurt that you have, I want you to know this. God has been there. God knows what that's like. He knows what you feel. He knows how it hurts because he has been there himself. God has been there. You know, I, I, there's something here in my own story that I hesitate to share because it, um, I normally don't use my children as an example without checking with them first, and I have not checked first. But, um, and I hesitate as well to, to bring up my daughter in the midst of a story about Hosea because there's a scandal here that I don't want you to think there's any, any scandal like that there. But actually what I want to share is about me and what's in me. And so I think it's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that chance. When we're having this, these conversations this last week with Becky, it did hurt me. And what hurt, the scandal, if there was one, was that my perspective on it and what I would have rather they do instead didn't seem to matter. At least didn't matter enough to change their plan. And that hurt me. And yet in the midst of that, in fact, I'm talking, talking, talking with them one day, uh, talking with her fiancé, Chad, and he said, you know, we didn't realize the effect our planning, as they were putting this all together in their own heads, we didn't realize the effect this would have on you and even, and even folks in the church that, that, that care about us. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's what I've been trying to say. And... And yet, in the midst of those thoughts, I had to say to myself, that's what I do to my father. Oh, he shows me his will. He lays it out, and it's like this. And I look at that, and I say, hmm, that's a plan. And yet, but if I, if I do this instead, if I, if I just go a little bit off here, you know, it's not going to change everything. It won't change the end. It won't change the outcome. And so I can do my own thing over here. I can do what I want instead. And it really won't matter so much. It certainly won't change the end result. And so what does it really matter? And yet if nothing else, what matters to my God is I didn't live out my love for him in simply trusting him for what I don't realize, what I don't see. You see it? Any hurt that I would have that she chose not to listen to me? Oh, what, what about the hurt of my God, of my Father, whom I too often don't quite listen to as closely as I ought? It isn't a matter of, of, of slavish obedience. It's a matter of trusting Him in love. You see? So in the midst of my story, so to speak, of, of trying to figure out what they're doing and my anguish about it, that story pushes, pushes me deeper into the heart of God. There's an old hymn. It says, into the heart of Jesus, 
deeper and deeper I go, longing to know the reason why he should love me so, why he should choose to lift me up from the miry clay, saving my soul, making me whole, though I had wandered away. Could it be that our story, even the hurt of it, whether it's hurt from somebody else, whether it's collateral damage from the sin that is in the midst of this broken world, whether it's the hurt that was a result of my own rebellious choices, that hurt can press me closer to the heart of God. You see, your story matters. Your story has meaning because God is hurt like this too. And because God is hurt like this too, your story has meaning and your story is the ground upon which God's redemption can play out and must play out. Your story is the ground on which God's redemption can be seen. That's Hosea's messages in chapter 4 all the way through 10. It's a, it's, a, it's a message of confrontation. It's a message Israel needs to hear, and they need to hear it from Hosea. And Hosea has a, his own story that makes him a very powerful message of this. Hosea has been used by God to display unfaithfulness, marital unfaithfulness in a way that, that, is, that is tangible so that God's people can understand what it is to be spiritually unfaithful to God. It's an image that Paul grabs hold of in 2 Corinthians 11 as well. It's a powerful image. It works because it's an image that comes out of our human experience and puts spiritual truth right alongside the most intense of human emotions and experiences. Our relationship with God is like that. Hosea's story doesn't just matter. His, his story has, has meaning. His story is the ground on where redemption is going to be seen. You say, well, I, I, I don't know that I want to be used by that, like that, God. I don't know that I want to be an example for you to show redemption. I don't know that I want the pain of it. I don't know that I want you to send me into that. God already sent his own son into the midst of it. And you know what I will learn here? In the midst of, of, of the brokenness, whether it's, like I said, it's from myself or from others, in the midst of this brokenness, I can learn something about the heart of my Savior who entered into this willingly, knowing all of it, knowing the end from the beginning, knowing the cost, and yet he entered into it for me. As I experience some of that, any of that, I will experience something of the heart of my Savior. And that is invaluable. I don't want to suffer for no reason. But you know, even the enemy has a reason in, in the hurt, in the trouble, in the sorrow, in the suffering. Even our enemy has a reason. He would use it to crush, to, to cause, bring us to despair. He would use it to destroy us. But God has other plans. God has other plans for those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purposes. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The enemy would crush us. The enemy would bring us to despair. The enemy would destroy us. But God's plans are different. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Second Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 7. You'll find it on page 965. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. 
We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry in the, in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in my body. You say, I want Jesus to be seen. I want the life of Christ in my body. That's what I want. You know where you'll see the resurrection life of Christ? When we also participate in his sorrow, in his suffering, even to the point of his death. Paul said, more than anything else, I want to know him. I want to enter into his sufferings, Philippians chapter 3, so that I might know him and his love for me. Into the heart of Jesus, deeper and deeper I will go. And what's the outcome of that? Let's skip down to verse 16, same chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart then. We're not overwhelmed. Even in the midst of sorrow or trouble or hurt, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, careful, Bob. You just called the, the, the worst of my heartaches light momentary affliction. No. Actually, I talked about affliction in every way. I talked about complete perplexion. I talked about persecution. I talked about being struck down. I talked about carrying around in our own bodies the death of Jesus. That's what he says is momentary light affliction in comparison to the glory which will be revealed in us. Might others see, might Israel see through Hosea whether they respond or not. And a minority do. A minority always do. Some see it. But whether they see it or not, whether they respond or not, that they might, that God's glory would be shown, that God's glory would be seen, that matters. That matters. That the love of God in the midst of the brokenness of humanity, God's unrelentless pursuit in mercy for those he loves continues. And that some of that could be seen in even the hurt of our own lives. Your story matters, and your story has meaning. Your story, this is the ground on which redemption can actually be seen. Let me try to unpack that in a couple of examples of how. I lost my place. It might be in need of forgiveness. I have been hurt. I have been wronged. Somebody has cheated me. I need to forgive. I don't have to. They're wrong. I could hold on to this. I could hold it against them. And yet, we're told to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. Some of you are holding on to something. Some of you have been wronged. It still hurts. And yet, forgive when it doesn't make sense, forgive. And when you do, you will be showing something of the God whose forgiveness doesn't make sense, and yet he does it because he loves us. In our own marriage, I already alluded, husbands love your wife. There you have a chance. There you have a chance to so show something. Rather than your own dreams and your own ambitions and your own pursuits, no, you will, for, you will forsake some of that. You'll lay that aside. You will make sacrifices. Sometimes or notice, sometimes nobody even sees. And yet you will make that sacrifice for her. 
And if not before humanity, before all of heaven, something of Jesus is seen in your life, in your loving sacrifice for the betterment, for the good, for the nurturing of your wife. It's meant to be seen there. Maybe in your work, you're not treated fairly. People scorn you. They ridicule you. They expect to rely on you when they need it, but they don't back you up. They mock you instead. They don't respect you, and yet you will do your work diligently, faithfully. You will will not reward yourself by taking something home that doesn't seem to matter, taking a little extra for yourself. You will not reward yourself because you trust that God will reward you. You will, from beginning of day to end of day, be a model of integrity, and there you will show that though you are scorned, though you are mocked, though you're ridiculed, maybe it's just not appreciated, but I will give myself in the serving of others, and there something of Jesus will be seen. My day-to-day work is a place where the faithfulness of Christ can be manifested. Your story matters. Your story is the ground upon where redemption can be seen and can be lived out. One more example, hiding in the midst of trouble. When we ache, when we hurt, when we have stuff inside of us and we want to, we want to hide it. We want to, no, no, I'm fine. I'm good. Nothing wrong with me. It's all, it's all okay. That's what we want to say. And yet, to be able to share our hurt and yet still love. To to be able to acknowledge our own hurt and yet continue to trust in our God, that is the ground upon which something of Christ can be seen. One more, one more example. Some of you are aching. Some of you hurt this morning. You're in physical pain. You know what it is when the Scripture says the outer man perishes. But the inner man is being renewed day by day. Maybe your inner man is being renewed, but sometimes you don't feel so renewed because the outer man really feels to be perishing. Can I get an amen, some of you? You feel like that this morning. It was, you ache, you hurt, you suffer. You're going back to the doctor again. And you want to say to yourself, God, why? Why can't you just let me live pain-free and in peace until you bring me home? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And yet, this is the ground upon which you can really, truly, before others, live out an inexplainable hope in the midst of pain that, that, that seems to deny it, and yet you confess with your life and your lips, the outer man may perish, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. I long for a time when my whole body will be redeemed and glorified, and I will leave this mess behind, and I will be with the Lord, and I will see him, and I will be with him, and I will be like him, because I will see him as he is. You long for that day. And that day gives you hope that there's no other basis for in the midst of the pain that you go through day by day. Oh man, as we think of the faithfulness of our God and the hope that is set before us, maybe that can wipe some of the grimace off our faces, off our countenance. It might not take the pain away, but I've seen joyful eyes in the midst of deep pain. And that, brothers and sisters, is a testimony. That's where you believe it in a way that convinces others that you believe it. Your story matters. Your story has meaning. Your story is the ground. Whatever you're going through right now, this is the ground on which redemption can be seen by others. Hosea's grief also has room for hope. We saw that in the first chapters, didn't we? We see it in the ending chapters. 
Hosea's story, his grief has room for hope. Your story is not yet finished. Your story is not yet complete. Just like there's an end to Hosea's story, there is an end to your story because there is an end of great hope and ultimate fulfillment in God's story. And we're a part of that. And we lean toward that. We live toward that already now. Turn over to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. The closing chapters of the book, the last probably couple of sermons of Hosea's career, at least what we have recorded here, are, are they're embraced, they're wrapped in an expression of tender hope. The beginning of chapter 11 and the close in chapter 13 embrace this last section and it's embraced in hope. Listen to this. When is, listen to the tender love of God here. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Wait a minute, he, he later applies that to Jesus. Jesus is sent to Egypt and back again just to show that Egypt is stepping into the footsteps of Israel. Jesus is going to live for Israel and he's going to die for Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and they burned offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. Image of a little toddler, just like Ryan and Jill were helping little Michael to learn to walk. And just like uh, Kenny Ring is here this morning, he and Evie just had little Charlotte. It'll be a little while before you're teaching her to walk. God says, I've been there. I've done that. I've ached over children. You, you are the children that God has ached over as well. They did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and I fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be their king. They're going into captivity, yes, because they refuse to return to me. The sword is going to rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. Though they call out to the Most High, he will not raise them up. Oh, but how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? I can't make you like those cities of destruction, the neighbors of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. God says, I cannot give you up. That's God's heart for his people. Your story, like Hosea's story, like Israel's story, has room for hope. Let me, let me show you how it closes in verse, in, rather in chapter 14. Chapter 14, where, we, where that hope is, is perhaps encapsulated and we can grab hold of it. And we can even put it in four steps of confession, repentance, of receiving mercy and of restoration. Chapter 14, I said this end section was, was wrapped in God's arms of mercy. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words, return to the Lord, say to him, take away all our sin, accept what is good. We will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips. What are they saying? We will return to the sacrifice. We have sinned. We need a substitute. We need a sacrifice and a sacrifice that God has described. There's a confession of their sin. There is a turning away from reliance upon themselves. Assyria will not save us, verse 3. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our own hands. No more idols. It's in you, God, that the orphan finds mercy. We have turned to, from our own ways 
to God's mercy. And in that mercy, they will receive that mercy. Hear God's words in verses 4 and 5. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger is turned from them. I will be like dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots will spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance to Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. There's God's restoration. You see, there's the pattern. There's the picture. There's the end of the story. That's what this table epitomizes as well. This, this table epitomizes our confession, our repentance, our turning away from anything else to God's provision. We receive God's mercy. It's in this table that Jesus says, this is my body given to you. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. This is God's sacrifice. This is God's mercy. And this table also is a, discretion, is, a, is a description every time we celebrate it, but our hope in God, because here at this table we say, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, what? We proclaim the Lord's death for us until he comes. Longing for, looking for that restoration. If, if that's your confession, if that's your hope, as those who are serving come forward, I, I invite you to Prepare your own heart to, to join us at this table. It's for those who believe in Christ as their Savior, those who have confessed my need of Jesus as God's sacrifice, my Savior, who have turned from any goodness in myself to rely on God's mercy on my behalf. If you have received his mercy, receive for yourself God's forgiveness in Jesus that this table declares if you look for, if you long for his coming, then join us as we pass first the bread and then the cup. Well, I think the worship team is going to play a song just, just to give us an opportunity just to reflect, maybe pray. If there's bitterness in your heart towards somebody else, maybe there's bitterness in your heart to God himself because of the trouble that's in the midst of your life. Ask God instead to show you how can redemption be seen and lived out even in the midst of my pain, for your glory. You may have come here this morning thinking, I don't think God could ever forgive me. He can in Jesus. You may have come here this morning wondering, would God still forgive me again? And the answer is yes. In Jesus, he will. If you and I will come to him, confess our sins, and receive his forgiveness. Father, would you guide our hearts into confession? Would you guide our hearts into just reflection on Jesus, our Savior, who loved us, who gave himself for us? In his name we pray.
on that night that he was betrayed, our Savior took bread. And he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that the sinless Son of God that this unleavened bread reminds us of was pierced through for us, for our iniquity. He died for our sin that you might restore us to yourself. Thank you for your mercy to us that is in Jesus. We 